Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Austin Wintory. Austin is a composer for video games, film, and even concert music, and has worked on games like Journey, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, Abzu, Absolver, and most recently, The Pathless. While Austin's music tends to skew more towards the orchestral realm of things, all of his advice definitely applies to anyone who wants to make a killer living in the world of music. Now, this interview was recorded initially for Game Sound Con in 2020, but it still holds up today. So if you hear any references to Game Sound Con, that's just a video game sound and music conference that happens every single year, usually in the fall. And with that, let's get into it. One of those like starting questions I want to ask you is that you're, I, I always use you as a reference when people ask me, oh, can I do film, video games, and concert music? Which is a question I hear surprisingly a lot, like almost every week people ask me that. Really? And which is, yeah, I never, I, I know film and games obviously has a crossover, but concert I'm noticing more and more as a question coming up. So I'm wondering what your thoughts on doing all those three are, because I always reference you like Austin's doing it. I assume it works out, but how do you balance it? Is it a different networking thing? How do you kind of set that all up? Yeah. I mean, it would be, it's interesting to think that there would be a reason one can't. Hmm. Maybe I'm just bullheaded because to me being told I can't do something is like the easiest way to convince me to try, you know, <laughs> but truthfully, I would, I'd be hard pressed to think of a reason in any like pragmatic sense, how you can't do it. The obvious limitation invariably is just time in the day. Yeah. But to the specific of your question, yeah, there is a certain amount of non-overlapping crowds of decision makers and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Whereas developers and publisher type people will be a very traditional pathway to finding opportunities in the game world. Conductors almost singularly are the path to concert work. Hmm if we're talking about orchestral and or opera yeah. work, 95% of my concert music life has been orchestral in nature. Yeah. I don't do huge amounts of chamber music, but of course, if you were to, obviously, you know, chamber music, you can just intuit your way through it. Like what are the common types of chamber configurations, you know, string quartets, wind quintets, there, there's a bunch, there's percussion, groups uh, all over the place, some very noteworthy ones. And, uh, and the way those worlds tend to work is you would ingratiate yourself or they'd become interested in you. And then there tends to be a lot of back channel chatter. Mm. Like one of my favorite conductor relationships that I have is with this uh, wonderful conductor named Scott Speck, who has four different ensembles that he conducts. Uh, he's three different orchestras and then also the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago. And we met because a conductor friend of his recommended me when he was mm. looking for a composer in residence, he, he was just like, I want to do a multi-season collaboration with a composer. And you just asked like a forum of conductors 
anybody here want to throw mm. names at me? And one of the people that replied was a guy that I had done that exact kind of thing with and I, who I had met because I went to high school with his wife way back in the day. <laughs> and she sang on my, uh, my earliest pieces and in my first ever kind of real recording, she was a solo soprano. And so in true traditional form, you know, you, you meet someone and then someday that kind of blossoms in an unexpected way. And so that's, you know, that's tended to be how that's gone. But I also find that there's been, there actually has been interesting crossover more and more hmm. where I have met so many orchestras because they reach out to me initially to, cause they're programming like a video game concert. And then it's happened so many times that I will just ask them, Hey, what else are you putting on the show by chance? Mm. And they'll say, we're actually, we're still working that out. And so I will say, well, if there's any way I can help, let me know because I love opportunities to promote my friend's work and also to help make sure that they're getting actually good arrangements of stuff. And like, just to try to help them put on a real show. Cause I've been to enough of those shows that were very cringy where it's like, <laughs> where in the hell did you get this chart? This is awful. Like that's not representative of X, Y, Z, you know, World of Warcraft, this or that. Mm. So it started with the Colorado Symphony years ago, my, my hometown orchestra, they reached out about performing some music from Journey, but they were kind of struggling to find other charts and not just for games. I mean, they wanted, they, they had some really cool items on their list. They said, you know, we'd love to do the main title of the Batman animated series, which huh. was Shirley Walker's take yeah. on Danny Elfman's theme from the 1989 uh, Tim Burton film. And so I tracked down who the copyist was and it was someone I knew. And so I called them and I said, <laughs> can we, can you get me the score? Like I imagine it's just in a box handwritten from, you know, being from the eighties. And it turned out Warner Brothers had cached that in a salt mine archive <laughs> and, and they didn't have the original anymore. They had a photocopy. The original was lost. And so in the interest of not just transcribing the piece, we literally sent someone to go into this salt mine wow. to find this thing. And then they scanned it and it was just <laughs> awful condition. So we basically used that and re-engraved it from scratch, made a fresh new set. But that was great because then the publisher was like, oh, hell, well, now we have a performable version. So it was kind of like, okay, well, let's keep helping each other out in this way. Nice. So I was able to broker a lot of uh, world premieres of unplayed great stuff and commission arrangements and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then orchestras kind of started passing my name around as a guy that would help them with these programs. And so, you know, I'd go out, I'd conduct my stuff and then we would do, you know, world premieres of all manner of things. Just, I'd call my friends and say, Hey, I love like this one random cue that you did in a thing. Like, can we do that piece? And, you know, obviously the answer is almost always yes. And so, but that has led to these relationships where then the orchestra would say, well, what else do you do? And it'd say, well, actually, you know, I have a, I have a piece about, you know, Alan Shepard, the first American in space, you know, are you interested in, oh, well, you know, next year's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo program. <laughs> we could, we could premiere, you know, so it's like these things, I always kind of spiderweb, but for me, it's always about proactively just engaging with people and saying, how can I, to steal a line from my agent, Sarah, how can I, um, kind of be a solution to the problem that you don't know you have uh, mm. and, and just and be partners in it. And, and oftentimes it means helping them program a show that doesn't include any of my own music and that mm. I otherwise have no part in. And I'm just like, hey, if I can help you guys put on a good show, you know, I feel like I have a decent handle on how to put together a good show. And, and you may use or not whatever I offer to whatever taste suits you. And um, hopefully we can go from there. Now, of course, in the last nine months, 100% of that <laughs> side of my career has vanished. Right which, you know, selfishly is, is upsetting, but mostly I just think about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of musicians 
that I've had the luck of working with year after year uh, throughout the world that are all just sitting on their hand, nothing to do. Right. You know, some of them can make a living recording from home and stuff, but the vast majority are like, I literally have no idea what to do right now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a huge thing. And that's actually when my next question for you is you always do a really good job of finding live players, always recording, even for things like demos and that sort of stuff. Now mm. with everyone being trapped at home, how are you kind of managing that? How are you managing, especially getting live musicians? Is it all remote? Do you bring people over? How do you kind of handle that? Funny enough, I've used remote musicians for my entire career. Mm. So I, that, that was novel to me 12 years ago or something. Mm. And it was way harder to do back then. And there are a lot fewer musicians that could do it. I mean, the very first time I ever recorded remote, I had to book a studio because you know we had to use if not the earliest days of Source Connect, then it would have been like some predecessor to that. And we also had to have an, a dedicated ISDN line mm -hmm. and stuff because it was like the bandwidth needs. And so the, but that was 2008, I think. That was, a, we did a, it was, we had to do a remote hookup between Capitol Records and Abbey Road. So that was my first time ever remote recording. And, and, and despite the fact that there was a lot of overhead involved, it was no problem, even with nice. the time zone change or whatever. And then, but from, from then on, even just a few years after that, it started to become relatively commonplace where I, I have sessions all the time now. I, of course, I prefer to conduct. I prefer to have a musician come in here or go to their place or whatever. But just as a practical reality, so many times, you know, I'll, I'll have sessions in the afternoon here in that morning at like 5 a.m. because it's, you know, noon and right. somewhere in Europe, you know, I'll, I'll just be sitting here with a score on my iPad, the skype on my laptop that i'm using for talk back to the to the local conductor and then um coming through like source in some way or another through my monitors and just sessions over and then just someone knocks on the door we record the next thing and it's it's just seamlessly in and out love it and so that part has been basically status quo for orchestral sessions obviously there was a window of time where that was impossible and by incredible dumb luck i didn't have any sessions in that I had some immediately before and then right again when things started to reopen and, and we were able to do a kind of super feathered out, you know, distanced orchestra of far less dense, you know, like 40 players occupying the space normally 70 people would take, like doing just a string session or something. Mm -hmm. So I had, a, I had a succession of those in a row in the last, I don't know, eight weeks. I've had, I think, three different sessions. Um, but I got really, really lucky because I've been finishing this game, The Pathless, and we had a session in London that was a very kind of weird lineup, an unusual ensemble that would have been really, it would never have come off if we'd had to kind of one by one track people in their bedrooms mm -hmm. the way a lot of people have been doing. Mm -hmm. So I just dodged a bullet. I would have had to rewrite a ton of the score to figure out a way to lean into what I had to work with. Because uh, at the time it was like, I'm pretty sure we're going to have to be locking this build down. Uh, you know, as it is, we ended up with more time and, so ironically, I would have been able to do by the skin of my teeth a very, very last second remote session, I guess, to London or something. But as it turns out, I, I was able to record all that stuff ahead of time. It was actually in London. I don't know if you saw that Darren Corb and I did this album together mm -hmm. of orchestral reimaginings of his kind of greatest hits from Supergiant over the last 10 years. We were able to record both um, in London on the same trip. Um, and again, that album will also, it's hard to imagine doing that album under a quarantine situation. It was so much about a group playing together. Darren sang live when the uh, little chamber orchestra played. And yeah, you got really lucky because it, <laughs> it, was, it was literal weeks later that things shut down. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's super lucky. But I'm glad that it's all kind of worked out in a sense for for what you've been up to. And musicians have been able to stay busy. And, and yeah. like I have friends that do TV shows where, you know, they had to pivot partway through, you know, that like orchestra started off one way. And then by the end of the season, everyone's tracking at home. And it's this editorial, just crazy amount of quantizing and cleaning mm-hmm. up every single individual musician. And But uh, Laura Cartman did this show, Lovecraft Country, off, I think it's an HBO show. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it's it's pretty awesome. But that was the, as far as I'm aware, the only show where 100% of the score for the whole first season, it was done that way. Like they, they didn't start scoring until lockdown had already begun. And then the first season dropped like just the other day or a week ago or a month ago or something recently. I have no sense of time. <laughs> and then it was like, it was like a news beat. It was like in, you know, variety or whatever that this show literally recorded 100% because the, the mandate was we we don't want any musician that might have had a job to lose a job. Mm. And it's like good on them to undertake the massive headache of engineering that, you know, because we're talking about full orchestra yeah. stuff recorded one bedroom at a time. That's incredible. And, and, and trying to pull it off so it doesn't sound like that. And it's what's insane is how doable it is. You'd think it would be right. just this uncanny valley nightmare of a monstrosity. And it's, it's actually generally still a lot better than a mock-up so it's like awesome. even even with the pain in the ass the final result sounds better than that it's it has its drawbacks but it's passable easily that's awesome that's so cool i actually didn't know that that was the case that's really awesome so speaking of kind of these just crazy unexpected moments especially with that show you were just talking about like the the tv world especially right now you know is being all upended and is very weird especially but even in general working in any kind of media field can be fascinating with its challenges and setbacks and all that sort of stuff. And I love how transparent you are with, especially the Star Trek Discovery story of what you went through and how it all came about and the demos you wrote, demo, demo, then another demo and the creative lead, I believe, left partway through. You are so transparent about that. I absolutely love it. So when you have, I guess for lack of a better word, setbacks like that, I don't know if that's the right word, but you know. You know, it's like, if you ask an actor if they audition for a role and then don't get it, does that constitute a setback? Right. And, you know, some of them, you feel that you're so close that it kind of feels like a setback, but then you take a step back and you think about it another moment and you go, yeah, but the feeling that I had it was truly of my own invention. Mm-hmm. In their mind, at best, I was at any time just one of the candidates. You know, there have been some where I really, I was really emotionally invested. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, you know, when I didn't get the job, I, I was crushed because I, I just, it just seemed like an awesome job. Like it just seemed like a great project. And I was excited. I loved the people involved and, and for whatever reason, you know, you know, intervened otherwise, but it, I wouldn't call it a set. I, I'm yeah. not trying to derail. You. No, no, I completely agree with you. It's par for the course, you know? Yeah. yeah. So because it's so par for the course, I'm wondering, do you have some way to quote unquote deal with it? Is it, does it just roll off your back? Because I know people who are just starting out when they lose their first gigs, even it really hurts. But as you get more used to it, it kind of tends to dull a little bit, but do you have some sort of process that keeps you prolific, keeps you productive, even when a rejection is placed in front of you? It's an interesting question because I think that as my career has kind of made its way along, the nature of the opportunities has kind of scaled which means that the comparative excitement has scaled. So I wouldn't say that I'm actually less disappointed when things don't work out, <laughs> even if it's a 
more familiar feeling than in prior years because I've just been through it enough times. The short answer to your question is that no, I don't have like some ritual or some process and I, I don't like put on pajamas and eat ice cream and <laughs> be like, oh, men suck. Uh, you know, like some cliche sitcom character. Uh, I um, it, It's more just, you know, I've been lucky that generally speaking, anytime something like that's happened, it's not like I'm unemployed. So right. I immediately have to focus back on the deadline I already had. Like case in point, there was a demo when was this? I think this was almost two years ago now. I was working on a documentary with a director I've done a lot of movies for over the years. And this was in typical documentary fashion. It was essentially wall-to-wall music. So it was, you know, it's delivering like over a hundred minutes of score, but also in typical movie fashion, that's a five-week turnaround or something <laughs> instead of, you know, a year or whatever you would more normally have on a game. So I remember, um, we were about five days from some orchestra recording sessions and then maybe eight days from the final dub where you're, you know, you're sending your final deliveries in and, and then you're out and they're doing their final mix. And I get a call on this Friday, like essentially a week from that, from my agent who says, Hey, there's a project with um, one of the major publishers was looking, they, they called my agency asking about a different composer, but it was, you know, gratefully they said, well, you know, since we're on the subject of games and composers, what about Austin? And there were some people that I knew from the project. And so it wasn't like a random just bringing me up. It was like, you know, I would like to remind you that you know Austin. <laughs> and they were like, oh, we're not sure he's a great fit. But they weren't actually asking for demos. They were asking for reels. And mm. then they were going to take from the, I don't know, 10 reels or whatever and, and narrow it down to maybe three or four people to have them demo. So my agent said, um, look, just take a reel. You, you don't have to ask him demo, but, you know, consider a reel. And then she calls me and says, so you need to write a demo. <laughs> and so she was like, I know nothing about the game. They wouldn't tell me anything because they were just asking for reels. There's no, there's no like guidelines for a demo mm-hmm. yet. And she said, and I'll tell you, they specifically said their instinct was that you are not right for this. <laughs> like they know your work. And they, they have a very different mind and they were calling to ask about a very different composer on our roster from you. But I kind of nudged them into at least considering a reel. But I think from the tiny little fragment I have to offer, you should just write a custom thing anyway. And so I did. So I put this movie that was barreling at 100 miles an hour, I put it on hold <laughs> on for, for Saturday and Sunday of that weekend. It was like, okay, I'll take two days. And I wrote like 12 minutes of music. And I had, you know, it was like, I spent all day Saturday just writing these elaborate, you know, it was like, cause they, I knew a sense of what, you know, this was a franchise that's been around. I had a sense of kind of the types of music from a mechanic standpoint they would need. And so I just like, you know, here's a bunch in this vein, here's a bunch in this vein, there's a stylized to the, to the kind of specifics of your game. I think without knowing really anything, <laughs> then Sunday was this round robin of a bunch of musicians. We were, I was mixing and producing and doing it all and then sent it in monday as like here's my reel here's a bunch of shit i wrote for you this weekend and then it was like cool thanks yeah we remain convinced you're not right for this (laughs) almost instantaneously got back the word of like look we're and they did they were very nice they were like this is this actually really surprised us we never heard this side of you before and this is awesome but you know we're like we have our list we appreciate it we did listen but we're good, which was fine. But it was like, 
okay, now I have five days to finish this movie. <laughs> so there is no like grieving process right. because I don't, I don't have the luxury of it. So that's why I say that's a very lucky position though. Sure. Like, in the end, the crushing deadlines of that didn't let me feel terribly bothered. About it. And you know, in the end, it's like, I had my guess who they wanted. I turned out to be right. And they kick ass. And like, I celebrate their, I mean, this, this was years ago. This sure. game's still not out, but when it eventually comes out, I'm sure everyone will, will freaking love what they hear and, and all power to them. You know, my goal is never to convince them that I'm the right person. My goal is to offer up something that makes their choice interesting. And it, and then if I happen to align with that, then I'm ultimately helping them. And, and if I do something that is really definitively not what they want, I'm also helping them kind of by removing something from the list because it can be hard to choose, you know, if you got, you know, six people that you really like and you're interested in, the indecision that that can spur on is, is quite paralyzing. And so I try to be very divisive in these demos as well. And that also makes it easier, I guess, to kind of circle back to your question. That also makes it easier to feel okay about it because it's like, I took a swing in a very novel and weird direction, knowing that I would either immediately get it or immediately not get it. Mm. I very rarely do what I think they want. Like sure. sometimes there are projects where the guideline, like if I want to be seriously considered for it, I will have to kind of absorb certain no i mean star trek is a good example of that like there are certain things that just like define star trek if i had it in my mind that like no i'm going to reinvent star trek i'm going to be this bold visionary who brings polka to the <laughs> final frontier then you know like i will be easily walking myself out of that room there are just certain known isms sure. about certain projects and, but then others not so much and anywho is a wandering chain tangential <laughs> answer to your question no i love it i have rituals is the short (laughs) i love it because you you have a very positive wholesome kind of mindset about all this and you're again like you mentioned you're in a really good spot where you have other stuff going on so it's not going to really hurt you terribly if something doesn't work out so for the people who are you know maybe just starting out or more intermediate in their careers are you seeing any sort of mindsets or skills that may be lacking or just not there because they don't know they should be developing those things that they should start thinking of as composers? Well, I mean, the the stock answer seems to be universally true. I get asked all the time, you know, how important you and you must surely also, how important is it that I be a gamer? Mm. And I, I always say, look, I have plenty of composer colleagues that don't play games in their spare time. I do. Mm -hmm. I love games. I've started doing this weekly podcast where we basically just geek out about games. To me, I I feel very lucky to have found my little corner of the industry because I'm a fan of the industry. I was a gamer before I was ever had any inklings of being a musician. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't pick up music in any capacity until I was about 10 years old. I already had probably seven years of gaming experience (laughs) by that point. I mean, I I have memories of like, NES and Commodore 64 from like before I could talk uh, or concurrently, I guess. So no, technically you don't have to be a gamer, but if I was a game developer and I was sort of interviewing composers or, or, or even just hanging out with people and, and it felt like this person just doesn't, they're not fluent in the language of the thing I'm trying to build. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't empathize with or even understand what my problems are, you know, like, and I don't mean learning the buzzwords of the industry. I mean, like appreciating why they are stressed about like 
critical bugs and like understanding what that means within the process of a game being built or whatever, you know, it's just to really, really know how it all ticks. I think it offers a camaraderie that the lack of which seems like an unnecessary liability for yourself. But that said, if you're a talented composer and you love writing music and you love working with generally creative people, but games don't speak to you as a consumer, that doesn't automatically disqualify you in any way. I want people to feel encouraged to explore games, not discouraged to explore composing for games. Hmm. And I think that the, the delineation between those two is important. But so that's like the stock answer, right? That's sort hmm. of the, the generic answer of that is a potentially under because that going along with that is understanding interactive music systems, which is one of my big obsessions mm -hmm. as a composer in games is really not just throwing music over the fence and saying, look here, enjoy my tracks. I don't write tracks like that doesn't that doesn't even make sense for most games. Like if nothing else, it represents a massive opportunity missed. Interactive music is this amazing frontier that I think is going to you know, take its place as an, as an art form in the 21st century with no precedence. And mm -hmm. potentially, if I could have my way, it would be like the dominant form of musical expression of the 21st century because it would be like a reinvention of, in a way, music itself. So unless you play games, there's not really other ways to experience mm -hmm. that. You know, there are novel apps here and there, like, um, um, it's going to drive me crazy, Eileen <laughs> Reed, Ellen Reed. She recently did a kind of adaptive sort of Central Park, New York piece using New York Phil musicians that it's very simple from what I can tell. Obviously, I haven't experienced it because it just came out like two days ago. Uh, a piece of kind of modular bits as you wander around the park cool. using the kind of tech that very forward looking like museums use for their audio tours where it just kind of essentially geo tracks you and is like... Nice. I know you're in the room where we have the T-Rex skeleton. So rather than making you type in 013 with the little placard below, it just starts talking to you. It's like people have been investing in, in investigating like the tourism industry, been kind of investigating that sort of tech. And, and um, so they kind of piggybacked on that and said, well, what if we did a piece that's sort of geotagged throughout Central Park? And it's like pieces of music written around the various locations of Central Park that sort of ebb and flow seamlessly as you go around them. That's cool. That represents like a, a novel example of something similar to what we might do in a video game score that exists outside the world of games. But by and large, games are the only place that you're going to find the way to experience interactive music, where if I pick up my coffee cup, a violin comes in and when I put it down, the violin goes away or whatever. Hopefully not that lame, but you know, <laughs> something along those lines. And, and so for me, if you're not a gamer, you know, experiencing those things you're, you're missing out on a tremendously potent source of inspiration mm -hmm. like as as a creative person in general experiencing things like that i would think would mm. would be would be inspiring but the only other answer that i would offer which is to me i guess as i pivot into becoming a per, like i'm no longer a kid in the industry i'm not quite <laughs> one of the elders of the industry but i'm for an industry that's sort of young someone in their mid to late thirties starts to resemble the, the elder <laughs> statesman class, I guess. And so I start to sound a little bit like a get off my lawn kind of guy, but I will say I do find when I look at forums and stuff in terms of your question of specifically mm -hmm. things that are recurringly an issue with younger folks, I hate to be that guy, but the sense of entitlement that I mm. see again and again and again and again really drives me nuts because the only person it hurts is that, that person. Like they are not hurting anybody else. They're just short circuiting their own potential mm. 
by feeling like I am owed. There's a righteous indignation of what people feel they are owed. And I see it a lot on hmm. the subject of demos, like demos should be paid. And if you say yes to an unpaid demo, not only are you doing a disservice to yourself, but you're screwing your fellow composers by lowering the bar and driving the you know wages to the floor and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, you just don't speak for everybody. Like if someone offers me an opportunity, it is up to us and no one else's business what we work out for that opportunity. Mm. There are jobs that I have done effectively for free mm -hmm. where I onboarded all the recording expenses or whatever entirely on my own because I wanted to take a swing on that developer and I, you know, they didn't have much money, but I believed in their game. And, mm. and I get where it's coming from. They've, there's, my guess is that it's coming from a place of insecurity and fear of like, my career hasn't kind of found its footing yet. Mm. And it becomes this desire to kind of look for reasons why. Mm. And maybe it's easier to kind of blame someone else. And I'm like, maybe you just need some patience. Like, you know, cause it's, I have plenty of friends and myself included who, you know, we have years and years and years of work that we did before anyone ever heard of anything that we did. And, and so maybe that's the kind of psycho psychology that's, that's going on there. Now, I, this is not some screed against those who would champion workers' rights or anything like that, mm -hmm. not remotely. But the problem is those two things are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. and, al and also, I do believe that as an independent contractor, it is a different scenario from a salaried staff employee. And like, to me, my attitude is if there are things you do not like about the lifestyle of the independent contractor, that's not the lifestyle's fault. That's just you discovering that you're, you prefer a different rhythm to your life. You prefer, you know, a railroaded uh, sort of potential in, in exchange for perhaps more stability or more kind of, I would, you know, I would trade the fact that I know I'm going to be doing the same thing more or less from nine to five, Monday through Friday, in exchange for the fact that I also know I'm going to get a paycheck reliably mm -hmm. every two weeks or whatever. And then I, or maybe that they offer a health insurance or it like, to me, those are not invalid trade-offs to, to weigh. Like I would mm -hmm. never begrudge anybody for saying, keep me the hell away from a freelancer career. That's totally cool. Like that. I think I'm allergic to a nine to five mm -hmm. and I don't think that there's anything wrong with me for doing so. And, and nor do I judge anybody that would much rather have that lifestyle and say, look, I want weekends with my kids and to not worry. And it's like, cool, that's great. That doesn't mean that the other people are doing it wrong though. And like the nature of freelance is that it's kind of a wild west where everybody makes their own boundaries and makes their own rules. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's just part of it. And so when I see the loudest voices, and there, there are exceptions to this, but the loudest voices complaining mm. about the status quo tend to be those early in their career. And I just think it's worth, and again, mm. if you believe you're speaking about a moral truth, don't let me discourage you. Because maybe you have a moral insight that the rest of us would benefit from and the world will be a better place for your having spoken up. All power to you. I, I really am not I'm not trying to sound like, oh, these kids think they're owed the world. I just think people would do well to take a beat and say, it's possible that the system is not one designed to screw you and be this, you know, horrible thing. Because mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people that they come into it kind of ready for battle as if the whole thing is kind of corrupt. And, I, and mm -hmm. it's not omnipresent, but it's like, 
I noticed it a little bit more this year than I did last year and a little bit more than the year before that. And it's still not representative of the majority of what I would call young composers or young sound designers. But just the fact that it feels like it's an upward trend and maybe that's just anecdotally the forum I look at and nothing would please me more than for a proper statistical analysis to say, no, that's not true at all. I encourage people to not do the following metaphor, to step into a restaurant that you've never been to, to look around and the restaurant is populated by some regulars that are at the bar every single Friday for the last 20 years. And there's other people that have only been in the restaurant 10 minutes more than you and to step in. And while standing, you haven't even made it to the host station to put your name on the list yet before you've already found 50 things that need to change. I don't like where they place the fire exit. I can't believe that smell. Can you hear the sound of the espresso maker? They have no clue how to make a cup of coffee. It's like before you're all, try just buying a meal first or try like just observing for five minutes, you know, because um, I have witnessed some arguments born of a kind mm -hmm. of ignorance. And I don't use ignorance as a pejorative. Like to me, ignorance means you have not yet learned. Like I am ignorant of far more things than I am not ignorant of. And I love finding those things that I am ignorant of and disabusing myself of my ignorant status. And so it's like, give yourself a moment to experience that. And so that would be the only sort of non-musical advice is it, it, hopefully anyone who watches this it doesn't apply to them and that i really am not witnessing a trend i just it, it concerns me because I, I hate to see people feel cynical before they've even started mm -hmm. like this industry is awesome like yeah. and there's so many different people doing different kinds of stuff and the fact that i can you know be jamming with someone like darren and the next day i'm reading about you putting microphones in freezers and refrigerators or whatever the hell and like <laughs> it's like one thing to the next to the next to the next it's like there's inspiration everywhere it's it's really easy to see the positive and when you find yourself fixated on the negative i worry about your like emotional health yeah i think i think that's very fair and that is something i see a lot too but when i was starting in like 2011 i believe is when we met or 2012 somewhere around there and you gave me advice not dissimilar from this uh, right yeah it, yeah it was yep um and you gave me some of the best advice and i still think about it basically weekly and it's essentially yeah, I don't remember what i said yeah, no i mean it was a while ago but uh it was basically you you have to be at the right place at the right time and you don't know when those are going to be so you just have to keep showing up you just have to keep doing the thing keep showing up and eventually like a stopped watch it'll be right and one thing that's coming With up. The key being that the right place is usually more of a frame of mind than it is mm -hmm. like you have to move to LA or you have to move to Seattle, right. or you have to this or anything more or go to GDC or it's always about. Yes. I mean, you you are a, a wonderful example of that. <laughs> but another one of our friends and colleagues that I often use as an example of someone that I think embodies that is John Robert Matz, oh. who just that guy just explodes good vibes awesome. everywhere that he goes. Like he projects that right place yes. mindset and the spirit that I kind of evangelize for. Like he's someone who is constantly, he does a good job at not annoyingly sharing the, his work. Like he doesn't come across like somebody Never. that's shouting, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. Cause that can grow old. Like nobody, that's a one-sided relationship. If someone was only interested in themselves, that's just intrinsically uninteresting as a function of social behavior. Mm -hmm. He's not like that. Mm -mm. He's also constantly celebrating other people's work and, and, and playing their games and listening to their music. And, and I try to do the same. And I, I always love when I see people do that because I think we're all naturally a bit insecure. And it's like the moment somebody announces, Hey, look what I scored. You know, there's always this like, 
you know, could I have done that or whatever you stories you tell totally. yourself, right? You, we all have that kind of neurotic tendency, I think, just as the nature of creative work, like you're kind of hardwired to be vulnerable all the time. At least most tend to be. It's hard to be dispassionate about right. it because right. it's especially as a freelancer. And uh, and so yeah, he, he's he's someone that I that I often point to as sort of embodying that that way to be. And yeah, and I feel like you know he's he's had some real great opportunities and done very good work with them, and he'll he'll continue to have more because I think he just broadcasts that signal, you know, and, and that's, that's showing up, you know, and I don't know, and maybe he has days where it's really rough and it's almost like he has to kind of do that conscientiously, like going to the gym. Like I, I want to make sure I don't stop because that's been the case for me. I, mm-hmm. I have no issue transparently saying like there have been days where, where, you know, I was having a really crappy day, but then I'll see like, you know, I'm making this up just as an example, like this is not a true story, but it's like, it could have been true. Like Gareth recently, Gareth Coker mm-hmm. uh, was able to, to publicly reveal working on the next Halo. And it's like, and so of course that's the thing, like I, I will never resist the temptation to retweet things like that or like, hey, check out this art interview where he talks about his process working on it and, and this and that. And I, I really take a lot of joy in sharing my colleagues' victories in that way but like it could be that by chance that morning i'm having a, just a crap day i'm like for whatever reason personal reasons professional reasons i'm just hating the music i'm writing and it's just getting to me or whatever and so it's like i'm not in the mood to be like yay la, la, but i'll still do it because i'll be glad to have done it more than like i'll take joy in doing it mm-hmm. and, and it took me a while to kind of recognize that as well and there have been times where i i saw a story and i just scrolled past it because i wasn't in the mood and then i realized no no like i i still should do this though i still like i even if i'm forcing it behind the scenes i still would rather put that out there usually the next day you're fine again you know most shit's pretty fleeting <laughs> obviously real crises notwithstanding but like most right. things that would get one down in the day-to-day of life or not that big a deal and five seconds of distance from them and you realize it. And then I'm glad that like I was sort of still showing up as the guy that I purport to be, you know, and like, and, and I, and he, he, I suspect is similar and, and mm-hmm. cause it seems to be a, a true constant. I mean, it's possible. He's just always in a good mood, but that would be a little Stepford YZ. <laughs> and I suspect that's not the case. Yeah, most people aren't always, always, always in in that place. But, you know, I, I'm glad that you have such a good mindset about this because it is helpful to to share, to triumph other people, to to champion other people's stuff. So I'm glad you shared that because I think other people will take from your example and start doing it too. Yeah, well, it's just one of those that like, that's where circling back to your first question, I, I, I have one foot in the kind of culture of film scoring as well. Mm-hmm. And there, that is generally not a culture like that especially publicly there's tends to not be internal camaraderie nearly to the same degree i don't know if that's because that's an industry that's just many many decades older and kind of the sort of youthful exuberance like i think of collectively all of games is kind of like a teenager so it's like it's old enough to be book smart but it's not worldwide yet and so it throws itself recklessly into harm's way in a spirit of invention and, and, and experimentation that is wonderful and exhilarating. And there's comparatively few cynics and there's comparatively few, just put bluntly old people. <laughs> Whereas in film, you know, I mean, like there are, comp- even at the top of the game, look at someone like Alan Silvestri or, yeah. or John Williams, you know, these are composers that are in their seventies and eighties. 
there are composers still around, you know, who, Stu Phillips, who composed the original Battlestar Galactica TV show, you know, like 35 years ago. Right? He just turned, I think, 90 this week or 91, 91 this week, like yesterday, the day before. And, you know, there's just, we don't really have a corollary to that. And so I think the result is that the culture, you know, maybe was like this once upon a time. I've heard stories indicative of this, a very famous story that I love of the, uh, she's a very divisive figure, but uh, Sandy DeCrescent, who was the top orchestra contractor for ages and ages and ages until a relatively recent retirement, she got her start because she was working, I believe, at Universal, uh, you know, back in the day when everything was done in-house. The studios were one-stop shops. They had staff everything, including staff actors and, and um staff composers and staff orchestras. You know, there was an MGM orchestra and a Warner Brothers orchestra and very famously, you know, composers like Wolfgang Korngold scoring these Errol Morris adventure films of the 30s and 40s, all just down the street from here at the Warner Brothers scoring stage uh, with the studio, the Warner Studio Orchestra. So Sandy was like a secretary. She was 19 um, in the very final days of the Universal uh, Staff Orchestra. And I might be getting some of the details of the story wrong, but I hope not where her boss um, was in this mental health decline. And so she was gradually kind of off the clock, not really being a secretary and was like kind of making sure he didn't fail in his job. She was kind of protecting him as he got more and more dysfunctional until he finally committed suicide. And no one but her really saw it coming, I think, Hmm. because she was able to essentially step in and, and sort of salvage these recording sessions and stuff that would have been basically in total mm. disarray because he was the one guy tasked with his job. Well, this was like the era of Mad Men, right? This is like the very overtly misogynistic mm-hmm. corporate culture of the 60s where she got her tires slashed and stuff where people would leave notes on her car saying like, you know, princess, leave this to the men because she basically stepped in and started as a, essentially a 20-year-old or whatever was doing the job of a, of a guy in a very man's man cultured environment but she's this total like fuck with me type and just instantly like got out the knives and was like i dare you to come at me and became like this warrior and a legend in the industry and so people very quickly like jerry goldsmith and john williams and bernard herman and alfred newman became like her closest friends and they realized this this woman fights for us to have the best possible Mm. groups and she's a composer's advocate within her part of the pipeline but because there was all this antagonism towards her, the studio heads felt that she represented a liability and they were just genuinely worried for her safety. Again, maybe that's a charitable interpretation of their <laughs> motivations, but they basically said to her, we're going to have to let you go because we, we just, you don't, it doesn't seem like you're honestly safe. Like there are people that really hate you and want you out of here. And there's a reason I'm telling this story because a bunch of composers basically marched in, including literally like John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Bernard Herrmann, Lalo Schifrin. There's like, like 50 composers, Elmer Bernstein, like some of the biggest names that have ever been names in Hollywood, all collectively went in and basically said, if you get rid of her, you're never working with any of us. And they, they stood by her. And, and, you know, like I said, she just recently retired. And she'll come out of retirement to do John Williams <laughs> scores. So she worked on like The Rise of Skywalker and, and uh, Last Jedi and Force Awakens, but was effectively retired for the last... I don't know, maybe eight or nine years. Um, he's kind of the one exception she makes because they've been friends and probably stories like that where he stood by her 
60 years ago or right. 70 years Amazing. ago or whatever. I guess it would have been, yeah, in the 60s. So, yeah, solidly 55 years ago, we'll say. And so point being, like that camaraderie of the mm-hmm. composers coming together and actually kind of taking a stand, you'd be hard pressed to find something like that today mm. in the film world. There yeah. is just not, and it's not because it's like a hostile space. It's just everybody's kind of in their own world. And yeah. every now and again, things will happen where composers come together and there are definitely like, some composers that are like noteworthily friends, you know, like right. Hans Zimmer and James Dune Howard or Chris Leonard's and Blake Neely. And like, there are some like very publicly known, like where they do stuff together, they organize events together, that sort of thing. There are those moments, but that's where I see that. And I, and then I look at the film side and I'm like, we're, we can still kind of hold it together. And, and credit, you know, to gang, I think, and mm-hmm. overwhelmingly for kind of starting that process really early and people like Chance and, Tommy Tallarico and Clint Bajakian and looking around and going, let's keep this feeling like a family operation while it's still small enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it still yeah. is small enough to do that as big as games have gotten, like pretty much we all pretty much know each other. You know, it's like the moment somebody new shows up, they're instantly in that group, you know, like somebody just appears out of nowhere with a new score. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I, I wish I had it still open. There's this game that just came out with a composer who I had never heard of before, Maxime Lacoste. Oh, for Spiritfarer? Spiritfarer, yeah. I yeah. played that game this week and it was not my favorite game ever, but it, it was beautiful. But he did a really nice job. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a memorable score. I uh, did, a, you know, especially when I read through it and I realized that the majority of this is samples. Mm-hmm. I was really impressed. And it's like, so I, I had the band camp open to send him a note and be like, I'm, I feel grateful to have discovered your work this week, uh, you know, and it's like, I, we can still do that. We can still manage that, you know. And speaking of composers and sound designers and all that sort of stuff coming together, you're right that it is a tightly knit community and it's very friendly and open. And Game SoundCon is actually happening next month and you're speaking. And it's only 25 bucks to be there and entirely online. And the proceeds are even being donated to Education Through Music LA, which is yeah, awesome. Which I'm very grateful. Yeah, for. I'm on your board. I don't know if you know. But yeah, I, that was Brian reached out. I was very grateful. He, he messaged and said, I can't remember if he was asking in general if I had any LA charities to recommend or if he had found ETMLA, saw my name and then reached out and wanted to ask specifically. But all I know is one way or the other, we very quickly were talking about it. And he did a lot of research on on the program and, and, um, and you know really wanted to kind of make sure that this was all going somewhere, but it's a program I believe in immensely. I've been yeah. on the board since it was started basically in 2006 and a bunch of other composers have gotten involved uh, over the years and, and, and other folks as well. Um, our chairman, uh, Booker White, is the head of music preparation for Disney and has has been there for decades. I mean, literally, he, he does all the music copying and prep and, and sort of overseeing all the the just logistical like librarian type work to make sure that music is on the stands at every session and in the right order and taped and bound and proofread. And it's an enormous task, as you can imagine, on quite a few projects. And like, you know, he'll show up to the board meetings looking like a a war veteran because he just (laughs) came from, you know, like a Transformers session or they did the Lion King with with uh, Hans, he does all of Hans's stuff, and they did the Lion King, and he did the original Lion King with Hans, like because he's been at Disney for a long time. So nice. this is a second go around on Lion King with Hans, and um, that score was like, you know, his office had to figure out ways where Hans had this idea of what if we record the whole score in one take, literally the whole movie, 
So they spent like a couple of days rehearsing with a hundred piece orchestra, choir and African instruments and all this stuff. And uh, at Sony in uh, Culver City and, and then literally did like the whole movie. Yeah, like let's just, so imagine just the oh sheet music God. normally you only have to think 30 seconds at a time right and but now you've got to have like a book yeah it's like performing an opera you have to have like this 200 page book on every stand and so booker is the guy that are uh, no pun intended i guess he's the um he's the guy who's the chairman of our board at etmla but he also like that's his job you know managing that kind of stuff as his day job and, and he's so i know that they they interviewed him as part of game sound con too yeah talk about it which made me very happy because he's that guy's an amazing force of nature yeah so when you are on boards like amazing groups like education through music la or even speaking at events like game sound con or gdc or anything like that is there a specific type of person you want to reach or change someone's mindset or plant a seed in their brain is there something you're kind of going for is it different every time oh well i, I would definitely never say that i'm looking to to change anyone's mindset necessarily unless it's specifically framed the one thing I wish I could change people's mindset on is doing dollars per minute as a deal term. <laughs> I hate that. So much. I completely agree. 100%. I have given speeches about that before. Uh, I did a whole talk years ago at PAX Dev hmm. about um, composer contracts. The idea being that it's a room full of mostly non-composers that I thought they should know how our, how our deals are, are typically put together if they don't know. And what I think at least the pros and cons of the current business structure is and the kind of status quo of that. Yeah. But no, I, you know, my goal is always to say, look, I've had my experiences by and large. I've been very lucky. I've, I've certainly had my share of, you know, blows to the chin. Um, but I've been able to show up again and live to fight another day. And I just like to find some way to kind of tell some sliver of my story, hopefully in a relatively focused way, like it, Game Sound Con, I'll be speaking about this game that I put out last year called Erica that um, was a particularly challenging from an adaptivity standpoint score to put together. It was just a crazy, complex, interactive task uh, and a total joy, even if there were times where I really wanted to to uh, just pull the ripcord and, and bail. It was, the, it was the good kind, you know, it was like having a very relentless personal trainer that's just... Hmm becoming your enemy in, in, in service of you. And uh, so that's kind of how that game felt in the end. And now I, I hold it as a very cherished highlight in my career and my, mm -hmm. in my story. So, yeah, I don't know when I'm speaking, the goal is always to just say, look, here's my thoughts. And next, you know, go listen to Akash, go, you know, <laughs> listen to somebody very different from me, you know, go, go listen to, you know, Laura Cartman. She and I have spoken on panels together and, and she has a very different perspective on, on everything and, and, uh, and, you know, get that. And, and so my, my goal is, is to just make it abundantly clear that I don't speak for anyone but myself mm -hmm. and everything I say should be take it or leave it. And if it's help, if it's helpful for you, if it's inspiring, if it's informative, or if it's one of those where everything I'm saying just makes your skin crawl and, and, and you just think that guy is the most full of shit of anyone I've ever then I am a counterexample, and I'm I'm giving you everything you don't want to be, and you know, I don't love that, but I'll take it over over nothing. Yes, yes. you know, because at least then I've actually still somehow helped you, mm -hmm. um, and so so be it. Fair enough. I love it. The goal is not to be loved. The goal is to be helpful or to be useful. Yeah, you've put them on a side of offense, and that alone is 
helpful. Yeah, to just offer a perspective yeah. of some kind or another. Yeah. So let's wrap up with one last question is when you first started in this field and versus now, how has your definition of success changed? Was it different when you started out versus, you know, where you're at as a veteran? Yeah, it's interesting. I still always, I think I'm kind of perpetually locked into this mindset of feeling like hopefully the majority is still ahead. Hmm. Can't take that for granted. But um, that said, my earliest goal was I just don't want to have a side job. I don't want to have mm-hmm. a side hustle or I don't want this to be the side job, you know, because I originally way back in like in high school, the early days of high school, like my freshman and sophomore year, I wasn't convinced that I could actually do this. And I was also very interested in game design. So I started studying mm-hmm. programming, thinking back then they didn't have game design pro like majors or, or graduate degrees or anything. M- the majority of people from my assessment at the time were comp sci majors that then went and got a job at a developer somewhere. And, you know, I, there was not really such a thing as indie, mm-hmm. uh, like you had to go work for, you know, like my dream at the time would have been to go get a job at LucasArts uh, or Sierra or something, mm-hmm. or at the time it, it would have been like places like that, or like an EA or a Sony, Nintendo. So I kept thinking my ultimate dream is to make my own game and score them. And also to find opportunities to score other games. Mm. But I thought I'll kind of have to moonlight on those things while I work a day job in some kind of programming capacity. That was kind of what 15 year old Mm. me concluded was my most likely practical solution to just surviving and putting food on the table while doing something that I, I knew I loved. But very quickly, I realized I don't actually love programming anywhere near as much as I love writing music. Mm -hmm. And so very um, sage advice came from my great aunt, my grandfather's sister. She she didn't know anything about the music industry or the video games, probably never even heard of video games. But she was like, if you want to be a composer, you'll never stand a chance unless it's getting all of your energy. Hmm. And I realized that's probably true. And so I said, I'd rather rather kind of die trying. And, And I didn't even realize at the time, like, you can get in a, a job as an assistant to another composer or something and kind of be on that path and not be working in an utterly unrelated field. Like I, I was unaware, but I got very lucky that while in school, I was able to meet Genova Chen and yeah. foundations of that game company. And I was just by dumb luck able to get rolling kind of right as I graduated. And, and the tale of that had to last, you know, a number of years before things kind of started to aggregate. And then, and then, you know, it's no secret that, journey really shifted things quite dramatically it also de-emphasized film in a mm. major way i was doing on average five or six feature films a year and then they just kind of got crowded out by by the game opportunities that i had i still try to do as many films as possible mm-hmm. i still do at least a couple a year working on one right now and there's another one that starts shooting a week from now that i'll be scoring i guess at the end of the year or early into next year so that the, the diet was balanced but the, you know these were low budget independent films where the money they pay you basically get you through the time period it takes to write the score. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, right. okay, I get, I get five weeks of money if I'm lucky from this score that I have five weeks to write. The good news is that because you're so busy writing the score, it's not like you're out indulgently spending. So you're, <laughs> you're kind of, you're kind of living a Spartan lifestyle just in order to hit the deadline, which makes the money actually last that long. So it's kind of interestingly self-fulfilling and self-insuring, but um, all of that is a wildly unnecessary preface to my, <laughs> My definition of success was, I just want to make music. I don't care if I'm barely getting by or if I'm living lavishly, as long as I'm one 
angstrom past the tipping point into not having to augment my income some other way, even if it's something like, like you know, our conversation here is hopefully testament to, I enjoy teaching, but I didn't mm-hmm. want to have to do that. I wanted to do it because I wanted to do it. I didn't want to do it because I ha- had to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I've never done like teaching, teaching. I never had like private students or anything like that. I like lectures. I like uh, masterclass kind of things or I like group exercises where we're all kind of sitting around together and working through something as a group. And that stuff's very fun for me. And I wanted to, I wanted it to be something that I did for fun and I didn't kind of commoditize students. You know, I think like, okay, I need five students to get through this month. And that was my hope that I could. So to me, success just meant even if it's ramen noodle living and with five roommates and whatever, like, if I can get myself into that position and I was very lucky that, that I was able to achieve that and, you know, only barely better than that for quite a few years where I was, you know, I was surviving, but there were many times where my, the money in the bank was like five, six weeks of buffer at best. And, and a couple of times, you know, I had some unpaid invoices and I was going any day would be great because the rent's due in three days. Yeah. Like those moments have, have absolutely been the case, mm-hmm. but I still considered myself successful because it was like, I have no reason to think the invoice won't come and, and the bills will be paid. So great. You know, and to, to the extent that it has evolved beyond that, it's, it's now it's more personal stuff. It's like, I really genuinely want to do something. I feel like I haven't done. I really want to push myself somewhere. Or, you know, I want to like, I'll, 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 I'll intentionally seek out opportunities for projects that represent something really wildly outside of what I'm more known for. And even if nine out of 10 of those don't, they, you know, they, they just, they really have their heart set on somebody more known for that thing from the beginning. So be it, you know, I've had a few of those, like there's one that was working on all morning today. I don't know when I'll be able to announce it, but that's one of those where it was like, I was really hoping to have this thing work out. It it did work out and it's fun and it's just, it's vicious and dark and nasty (laughs) and totally different from the kind of, serene and supposedly relaxing music that I, that I am uh, more known for. And so it's like, to me, that's kind of my current metric for success is just anytime someone does me the, the great honor and graciously offers me the chance to do something that is kind of a leap of faith on their part. Mm. I try to make it not. That's why I'm more than happy to demo. I'm more than happy to just put my money where my mouth is and say, here, let's make this less of a leap of faith, you know, because I invariably it's like, imagine, imagine some like psychotic horror thing. And they're like the journey, dude, that's invariably how that conversation starts. And so it's like, I try to kind of take the the wind out of the sails of their skepticism Mm -hmm. as much as I can. And there've been times where, you know, I took a swing at something and they're like, you know, ah, I think you're better at journey stuff. Uh, Maybe they're right, but I'll still take those swings because I, I'm sure that I have real limitations, but I, I, I'm always going to try to find them and or push them as best I can. And that's kind of my metric for success, you know, these days. Now that I'm gratefully not six weeks away from this event, <laughs> I, it's like, okay, now, now I got to really, how do I just get better as a composer, basically? I love it. So where can people find out more about you? Websites, social media, all that stuff. I'm most, my handle on most of the things is a wintry. The only exception to that is Instagram because somehow there's like a fake one that's someone (laughs) made it, but they abandoned. So it's like, it's never been used, but I can't, they won't take it down. So I'm a dot wintry on Instagram. 
Cool. Uh, which drives me nuts, but whatever. I don't really care that much about that stuff. I enjoy sharing stuff here and there. But yeah, my website, I guess, my info, if someone like has questions or, you know, I always try to make myself very available. Um, and my, all my info is on my website, my email, even my studio phone number. Although, although I think that that landline is actually disconnected right now, but the number's there. It does work if there's a phone plugged in. And um, I try to be uh, very readily findable. The good news is that through a very bizarre set of circumstances, I am the only Austin Wintry on planet Earth. So um, if you Google me, uh, the only remote competition there is for my name is that there is like somewhere in Southeast Asia, I can't remember if it's, if it's a Korean company or so, somewhere there is a, there's a website, wintry.com, where they combined win and victory. And it's like a corporate strategy <laughs> company. And so there are a fair number of like wintry search results that are like, come take our management training program or something like that. But for, fortunately, I think my, you know, search engine optimization has them slightly one-upped, maybe only just so, I don't know, kind of different market. But bottom line, it's certainly, if you add the Austin onto it, it's just me, my incredible luck of my parentage. And so, um, yeah, you can find me on all the things and anybody, who, especially if it's folks that need help with something or, or they don't, or they don't know where their answer lies. I gratefully can say that I know enough people that I can usually point them where to go. You know, it's, you know, like if they, when I invariably get the message saying, where can I set up a contact mic with a freezer? <laughs> Yeah, I'm your boy. Techniques for that. I will say, well, I know exactly to whom to go. And uh, so, yeah, there you go. A wintry and or a dot wintry. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound pod. Sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects. They'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>